welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Starting a series called Courageous Orthodoxy. Um, we want to we give you, uh, we want to teach on convictions for resilient faith. Um, courage or courageous by definition is uh, a mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. I feel like what we need in the next season as, as Christians is courage, to be courageous. But also uh, for various things, we need to be courageous to continue to do the Jesus mission, the D- Jesus stuff in the world, signs and wonders, praying for the sick, healing the sick, all of that stuff, as well as orthodoxy. We need to develop uh, or, or really just agree and hold to orthodoxy. The word orthodoxy, for a lot of us don't know what that is. And I was actually apologizing a lot in the first, sen- first service, mainly because it felt like more of a lecture. And then somebody grabbed me and was like, don't apologize. We need to know this stuff. We need to know these words. So uh, I'm going to, based on that one encouragement, I probably got 10 other critics out there, but I'm going to go for it because I, I feel this weight to, to today and this, this series in particular. I could shift and do something else, but I feel like this series is about laying a foundation for our church. We're in a new season. We're in a new building. I want to lay the foundation that I think Christians should believe. So over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about scripture. We're going to talk about God. We're going to talk about the church, gospel. We're going to talk about the resurrection. We're going to talk about the cross. We're going to talk about discipleship. We're going to talk about things that matter so that we can lay a foundation so that when we talk about other things, we have this first to hold on to. Orthodoxy is translated uh, to mean right or correct belief or more appropriately translated is right or correct worship. And so we're talking about having a courageous, correct worship. What do we hold true as Christians? And now is probably one of the most important times in my uh, season as a pastor for the last 15 years. I would say I've never had more, uh, a, more, uh, a greater sense of the need to anchor us into right, right theology than I do now. Paul says something in 1 Timothy I thought I would start off with. In 1 Timothy Timothy chapter 4, I just want to read a couple of passages just to lighten up the mood real quick. Uh, Verse 1 says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. pretty light. The warning to the young apostle and pastor of a church in Ephesus, his name is Timothy from the Apostle Paul, is saying there's going to be a time when what's taught is doctrines of demons. And we need to be aware of that. And then he goes on and he encourages him to teach scripture and teach various things. And then he ends in verse 15. I thought I'd read this to you. He says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So today, we start a series. I want to talk today specifically about having a courageous fidelity of Scripture. Having a courageous loyalty to Scripture, faithfulness to Scripture. So we're going to talk today about what Scripture is how to read scripture, how to interpret scripture. What did Jesus, what was his interpretation or view of scripture? And then what are practices to help us engage in scripture? Are you okay with this? If you're not, you're gonna be bored. 
but I don't care at this point. It's more of like, I'm just going to do what I know I've come to do, which is to give you, uh, to teach you how to fish. I want you to know the word of God. There's this moment that I've always loved. I wasn't, I'm going to go there. I go in the gospel of Luke chapter 24. I wasn't going to do this. Can we go to Luke together? Luke chapter 24. Also, good news, we're going to have some Bibles here next week, I think, or the following week. We actually have literal physical Bibles um, that you can have. And if you don't want to be distracted by your phone, awesome. I highly recommend it. We're going to have physical Bibles you can hold. And then when I say turn to Luke, I'm going to hear this sound that's just the wind. And if you bring your Bible, I'm going to give you gold stars like I do in the kids' ministry. Um, Luke 24. So it's after the death and Jesus is seen by his disciples. He's raised from the dead. And, he, and it's this weird story where, where Jesus is walking with disciples who are going home to Emmaus. They were a, a husband and wife who were with Jesus. They were in Jerusalem when he died. And then they heard that some of the disciples saw an empty tomb. And in this story, they're walking back home, defeated and disappointed that their Messiah is dead. And then Jesus, who they don't recognize yet, He's resurrected. They don't recognize him. They were with him before his death. They saw him get killed, and now he's resurrected from the dead, and he's kind of hiding at some point, or his, his appearance is not the same. It's his physical resurrected body. And it says in verse 24, then some of our companions, they're telling this, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So they heard that some of the women saw the resurrected Christ. Then the other disciples, John and Peter, go, and they don't see, they see an empty tomb. And so they just head off. We don't know what's, what time it is, but, but they're just walking back home. And listen to what Jesus says. This is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, speaking to his disciples. He says, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all of the prophets, basically the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going to go further. But they urged him to stay with us. It was nearly evening. The day is almost over. So, they, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, here it is, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? The resurrected Christ finds some wandering disciples. And he doesn't say, here I am, check out the signs and wonders. He explains through the entire Old Testament how the scriptures point to him. And then they don't recognize him until he does what he did so many times in the Gospel of Luke. He broke bread. And it's in the moment of eating a meal with Jesus, it's him. He's gone. And they say, we're not our hearts burning within us. Garden Church, I want our hearts to burn for Jesus in the scriptures. 
I want to see people encountering the Holy Spirit every time we gather. I want to see signs and wonders. I want to see healing. I want to see testimonies of ears opening up and eyes being opened up. I want to see the miracles of God. And I want testimonies of our hunger for the Word of God. I want us to know the Word and be anchored in the Word and rooted in the authority of the Word, especially now. I want you to have a biblical worldview. Because what you have is a worldview that's shaped by the world. All of us have a worldview. Uh, Another word is paradigm, a perspective. A few years ago, the best way to illustrate it is I was on my way back from Montana, coming home, and there was a layover in Seattle. And I had to make an hour transition between flights. And I looked at my watch or my phone, and I saw that it was exactly five minutes before the next flight. So I panicked. I'm in, I'm literally in the air. We're about to land and I'm thinking, I have all this anxiety. I'm going to miss my flight. I got to text my wife. I got to get the text message ready. So when I have service, I can send it, find a new flight. I'm going to miss it. I'm literally imagining myself jumping over people to get out the door because I was the most important person in the flight. I had to get home to my boy. I had one son at the time and I was thinking, okay, oh my gosh. And then we land, I turn on my phone and there was a time change. I had an hour and 10 minutes to get to my flight. I had no, need, no reason to freak out, to be anxious. My literal perspective, my worldview shifted in a moment. One was shaped in anxiety and fear and chaos because I was going to miss the flight, the, the fear of what could happen. The other one was relaxed. I got a latte before I got on my next flight. I mean, we're talking about that's the power of a worldview. Our worldview shapes our longings. It shapes our language. It shapes our lifestyle. And right now, our longings, our language, our lifestyle, our values are shaped by a system of the world. And not all of it's bad. You're shaped by your families. You're shaped by your parents, about, around your cultural background. If you were born in Southern California, this geographic location shapes you versus if you were born in the Midwest or in New York or in another country. Your cultural background, your ethnicity, all of that has a way of forming the way you, you view the world. It's not a bad thing, but we have to hold it in tension to a biblical worldview as Christians. If you're not a Christian, it's not for you. But as a Christian, we have to hold up the scriptures and Jesus and the word of God against the cultural norms of our day, like Ephesus, when they're saying, hey, we we used to practice sorcery because that's how we engaged in the world. But when you come to Jesus, you no longer practice sorcery. That's no longer culturally acceptable. Or like in Corinth, when all you did was drink alcohol and get drunk and eat as much food as possible in these uh, uh, parties called symposiums. I swear, they didn't have this idea of moderation. They didn't know you were supposed to not get drunk off wine. They thought the way you connect to deities is by getting drunk off wine. So the Roman perspective is this is culturally acceptable. Paul has to tell them it's, not, it's no longer culturally acceptable for Christians. You have to give up that norm. You have to give up that lifestyle. You have to give up that value and realign it to Jesus. So for you, church, we have a world shaping us. And not just those things, but also algorithms and artificial intelligence and streaming devices and social media that is bending us in its image. And it's destroying the next generation. That's why we're passionate about praying for them. There's a study that came out that baby boomers had a 10% 10 of baby boomers had a biblical worldview. 7% of Gen X had a biblical worldview. 6% of millennials have a biblical worldview. And only 4% of Gen Z have a biblical worldview. 
meaning that they reinterpret the cultural values through the lens of Scripture and choose to allow their lifestyle, their longings, their decisions to come from the Bible's authority. Are you with me? So church, what am I asking? I'm asking for Garden Church to live under the authority of Scripture. That's all. That's this whole sermon. And I'm going to try to explain what that means in just a second and give you options because for many of us, that's, hard, that's a hard pill to swallow. But I want to teach you to live under the authority of Scripture, not the authority of your experience or the authority of your feelings or the authority of your individual expressive, expressive individualism where your, your truest self has shaped by our culture the highest authority in the land that everyone needs to accept. No, no, no. We're going to say, actually, Jesus, the Scriptures teach something else, that who you are is what Jesus says you are, what God has said, what he's imprinted in all humanity. We're not going to be confused about that and in the next several months, we're going to lay a foundation of theology in order to build on it so we can talk about things that are happening around us at this point. Because the world is suffering with chaos and confusion. And there's clarity that we have in certainty that's anchored in this beautiful thing God's given us through the Word of God. Is this good? Second service, you have a, a unique sermon. This is, an, this is, I'm just going to claim, the Spirit is alive in this moment versus the first <laughs> Let's podcast a second. <laughs> uh, sorry, folks. If you live stream, it's too late. Um, so I want to identify um, one of the, the, the problems with Scripture. Well, actually, there's a major problem with Scripture, right? Um, before I can say, okay, we've got to live under the authority, you could be like, well, hold on. Historically, that's not always gone very well. The, the Scripture has been used for some of the greatest good in the world and the greatest evil the world has ever known. It's been used to justify slavery. And it's been the primary motivation for the, uh, the UK in the 1700s to abolish slavery. And later, it will be the primary motivation behind the abolition of slavery in the United States. We've seen it's been used for evil and for good. Mark Twain says it's both poison and the cure. The Bible and its foundation has been the foundation for Nelson Mandela, for Gandhi, for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to work for nonviolent peaceful protest. Eugene Peterson writes, but giving someone a Bible, giving, uh, how giving someone the Bible is like giving an adolescent keys to a car. If you're not careful, you can do a lot of damage. So in the wrong hands, the Bible can be used for great harm. We know this. History has proven it. So when we talk about living under the authority of Scripture, what we're also talking about is having a good way of interpreting Scripture. I want to teach you how for the last 14 years at this church, we have preached the Scriptures. We have, we have developed a theological worldview or a, a theology of, of, of church. It's called ecclesiology. Why we believe the things that we believe. Why we have the values that we have. Why we say things like here as it is in heaven. Why we have uh, house churches. It's all coming from a biblical worldview about how we interpret scripture. It all comes back to that. In fact, what I'd like to suggest is that most of the problems we face culturally out there in regards to the church's response is a view, is basically two things. It's one's, interpreta it's one's interpretation of scripture and one's view of authority of scripture in their life. Those are the two things that we have a thousand issues on. So it's how do we interpret scripture and is scripture today authoritative? And the answer is absolutely yes. And we're going to teach you how today. Is that good? 
So let's start with Jesus in Scripture. Can you guys go to Matthew chapter 5? Let me hear those Bibles. Or let me just see your hands scrolling to Matthew on your phones. Just sound on. I see you. I see you in the front row. I see the Bible in the front row. I see the Bible. I see your Bible. All the hands raised. Just kidding. John chapter 5, or John, Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going. Matthew 5, it's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So he's teaching um, his kind of, this is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. He starts with the Beatitudes. He redefines what vocation for Israelite looks like, salt and earth, uh, salt and light, excuse me. And then he says this little transition statement. And this statement is so controversial. This is Jesus interpreting scripture. And remember, at the time of Jesus, we didn't have the Bible like we have today. We didn't have the canonical process. We didn't have the Old Testament collected in neat little passages. We had scrolls. But Jesus, when he refers to the law and the prophets, he's referring basically to the Old Testament. So let's, let's read about what Jesus says. He says this in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. He says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of pen will be by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, everyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of, fair, of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, what's Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus begins his teaching by saying, do not think I've come to abolish. That word abolish is translated to dismantle an institution. And what he's saying is he's being at this point probably criticized by the conservative folks of his day, saying that his teaching was so provocative, so counter traditional in some ways, that they literally thought he was going to be a heretic in preaching something, dismantle the Old Testament. And his response is, I have not come to dismantle or disrespect or disobey the law and the prophets. His, his phrase is, I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. I've come to bring to completion in my existence the entirety of the Old Testament. That is so controversial. Jesus is saying essentially that the Old Testament is pointing to him. That his interpretation, the law, the prophets, all point to him. And the fulfillment of the Old Testament is in the embodiment of Christ, Jesus in the flesh. He's saying we need to reinterpret the Old Testament now that he has come. Now, if you were living at that time, you would have been like, oh my gosh, this is the most controversial thing. He's essentially saying that the Old Testament points to him, and now that he's here, you need to reinterpret the Old Testament. This is what scholars call Christological hermeneutics. The word hermeneutic means interpretation. It's the process or the scientific study or process for interpreting Scripture. And what we have to have as Christians is a Christological hermeneutic, that the fulfillment, the climax of Scripture is Jesus. And I would say even further, further, it's Jesus on a cross. I'm putting it over there. It's right here. Jesus on a cross. We have, a, we have two crosses in our church. We've had these from the moment we started. Because for us, this is a symbol. And we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. When, when Paul says, I only want to know Christ, Christ crucified, he's not just saying justification of faith. That's not what he's saying. Yes, sin matters. Yes, we are justified by the cross. But he's saying the entirety of the scriptures, the entirety of the life 
ministry, message, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus in its summation is the cross. The window, if you want to know what God is like, it is self-sacrificing himself where you belong. This is a window to the love and nature of Christ. Therefore, we need to reinterpret all of the scripture through the lens of Jesus. You know, they, they say the spirit animates you. <laughs> I'm bearing testimony that he wants to animate this for you today, right now. Some of you need to hear that your lifestyle and longing has been shaped by a world, tradition, culture that is counter to Christ, anti-Christ. And we need to repent and give ourselves willingly to submit ourselves to the authority of the text to place our well-being under the interpretation that is anchored in the author's intent so that the scriptures point and shapes and forms our life and lifestyle and values and longings. So Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment. I didn't come to abolish. I have come to fulfill. He is giving you a new interpretation. Then he goes on to say, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke. In other words, there's not a dot of an I, not a cross of a T that will go, uh, that, will, that will dismiss the law. He breaks it down. And he simply says um, that he is a signpost. The Old Testament was a signpost to what's coming. And now that he's here, everything needs to change or be fulfilled in his being, which is why he's going to go on to reinterpret the law. So Jesus has an interpretation of Scripture. He has an interpretation of the Old Testament. And then in Christ, we have a new interpretation for what life is supposed to look like. Now pay attention. In the Old Testament, God gives the Ten Commandments. And he says, all right, we're going to form a new, command, uh, new community together. All right, let's get together and hang out. One way we're going to succeed as a new community is we're not going to kill each other. Awesome. Would you agree that's a good law to have? That's a great command. We're going to form a church. All right, we want to be successful. One way we're going to be successful is not murdering each other. Okay, totally agree. But they're like, Darren, you haven't served in the crawlers and toddlers yet. Just wait. (laughs) We're not going to go, hey, you're going to be married. One thing you're going to do is not, uh, you're not going to have an adultery. All right, don't commit adultery. Now, don't steal from one another. So that's what the Ten Commandments, right? They're creating a new humanity. This is the, the revelation of God in a society and time where it was normal to do the other things. They're saying it's not normal anymore because we represent God on earth. Jesus reinterprets the law and gets to the heart of it. It's not, no longer about judging success on obeying a command, like don't murder. He now goes on, he goes on to say, hey, it's not don't murder. It's about your heart. Don't be inappropriately angry. If you're inappropriately angry towards your brother or sister, it's like you've committed murder. That's a different, that's a different line. Would you agree? He just changed the goalposts, husbands and wives. He'll, he'll say, it's not about not murdering. It's about laying down your life for one another. That's the new goalpost. It will go to Paul becomes uh, saved, right? Through, through the revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus. A Pharisee a master of the Old Testament, probably had the entire Old Testament memorized. He gets saved, becomes a Christian, goes to Arabia where he probably spent his life studying the Old Testament to reinterpret now all of the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, which is why we have most of the New Testament written by Paul. And Paul goes from don't commit adultery to husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
that's a different goalpost. Would you agree? I mean, if we're judging the success of garden marriages by how many people did not have an affair, great. I think we could do pretty good. But if we are judging the success of marriages by how many husbands lived in their everyday ordinary life, like Jesus gave himself up for the church, it's a different ballgame. That's what we do with the text. We come to Christ and say, now how do we interpret? And that's what Christ intended. Are you guys with me on this? So he says, look, nothing's going to pass. But then he goes on and he says this, this line that really is shocking. He says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This phrase, sets aside, is literally translated to loosen, to relax one of these commands. Relax on, to loosen, to disobey one of these commands. Now, what commands is he referring to in this text? Is he referring to the Old Testament? Someone that loosens the commands of the Old Testament. And then once he's resurrected from the dead, now we don't have to worry about the Old Testament. Or is he referring to the commands that he's about to share in the Sermon on the Mount, which is filled with all sorts of new commands from loving one another to not being inappropriate angry, uh, not being inappropriately angry about giving, about fasting, about not being worried, not judging each other. There's a whole lot of commands in chapter five, six, and seven of Matthew's gospel. And there's a lot of them. And what I have to say is the most scholars believe he's referring to both. He's referring to the Old Testament as it was, and now all of the commands of the New Testament. He's saying, if you loosen or laissez-faire, relax on the commands that he gives, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you practice them, if you do it with intentionality, we're not just talking about reading the commands. I'm not talking about just reading Scripture. I'm talking about letting Scripture get in you. This is what Jesus is after, right? This is the heart of his message. He's not talking about, hey, just memorize Scripture, know the commands in the Old Testament. He's talking about practicing, doing, getting to the place where the commands of God, the Bible is inside you at a cellular level that transforms you and the human nature that you have so that you naturally flow with the essence the ousia is the Greek word of the kingdom life. Do it like that, then you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there's a direct connection to how you treat scripture and your experience with the kingdom of heaven. Wait, let me say it another way. There is a direct connection between how you engage in the authority of the text, in scripture being in your life, and your experience with eternal life here and now. How you treat scripture matters. Will you be a disciple who allows the scripture to form your life even when culture says something else? Even when you naturally desire something else? Self-control is hard, would you agree? Thank you. We're just by ourselves today, okay, Ethan? <laughs> yes, it's very hard. It, it, get married, you see how hard it is. Have a couple of kids, you see how hard it is. I'm sure all the teachers in the room are like, yes, yeah, self-control is hard. As you can see. <laughs> Jesus essentially desires our hearts 
to be transformed, to become a new kind of person. And we might think that, hey, we're just supposed to read the Bible, but Jesus says, for truly I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is your moral goodness has to be better than Mother Teresa, Pope Francis, Dallas Willard, Francis Chan, who I put, insert famous Christian here, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, as disciples, it's not that we're supposed to just memorize the commands or know the commands. You gotta let the scriptures do something inside of you. You gotta let your hearts burn. So Jesus says, take his commands seriously. So all to say, when we talk about the scriptures here, last week I gave you five reasons we are gonna be fruitful as a church. And number one was to, we're going to live the word of God. And when I talk about this text and what Jesus is after, I think that's what he's saying. It's not, we're not just going to preach the word. We're not just going to study the word. We're not just going to memorize the word. We're going to live the word of God. We're going to let it get into the atoms of our being. So it changes us here and now. So we're good students we're disciples who have prepared for eternity. Do you see it? That what I'm talking about, I'm not, if you're like, okay, help me have my best life now, I, I get that. Like, I want to help you with anger. I want to help you with your marriage. But I want to prepare you for your destiny, which lasts forever. See, we're, we're, we're here forming a community so that when, when we die, we just keep on living. Right? It's like, I want you to be ready for that transition. Some of you are going to be like, wow, everything's different. Some of us are going to be like, oh, I was living in heaven's reality already. It's just now better. And some of us are like, you know, when we die, we're going to know everything. It's going to be all. No, no, no. I think there's going to be growth in heaven. I mean, you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 2, the windows into heaven, and we're like, why did God create things to grow? Why did he create relationship? Why did he create the ability to expand? This is, this is God's heart and intention for creation, and Scripture is helping us here and now to live the way we were intended to live in the first place and to help prepare us for the rest of eternity. That's, that's a whole other conversation to have. So I want to invite you to live under the Word of God, live under Scripture. So you should read scripture. Why should you read scripture? Well, check this out. John chapter five, Jesus says, you, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Let me explain something about the living word of God. First of all, our scriptures versus any other religious book out there is the most unique. If you try to compare us to Mormonism or Islam or any other religion, nothing is as integrous as the New Testament and the Old Testament. Every textual critic, textual criticism is a, for, a branch of study that, that uh, studies the science and the legitimacy of ancient documents. Nothing is more credible, historical, and reliable than the New Testament. This is a fact. You, you don't have to be a Christian to believe this. It's a fact of the science behind textual criticism. We have been anchored in history. The Bible is God's word to us over a long period of time to, through people. 
It's not like Islam, which was uh, the book of Quran, which was uh, given as, as divine revelation to one person in a cave. It's not the Book of Mormon, which was given by, found some golden scrolls or golden tablets and then interpreted the, tr- interpreted the tablets through spectacles into a, po- uh, a top hat. This is all historically accurate, by the way. The Bible is written over a, a long period of time by many different authors with one continuous theme. And as we brought it together in the canonical process over a few hundred years, we, people in history for hundreds of years decided this is the continuous inspired word of God. And so this right here is a gift. And we shouldn't mistreat it. We should really choose to honor as followers of Jesus. I'm just so passionate about it. I believe uh, this is a time where we need to anchor into it. So Jesus says the scriptures point to him. And so as we study scriptures, it, it testifies of Jesus. It's God's love letter to us. It speaks to our humanity. It speaks to, to God's divinity. It speaks to all things in life. If you want to know about life and death and marriage, if you want to know about parenting, if you want to know about war, hate, love, if you want to know about sex, if you want to know about all sorts of things like what to do with mold in your kitchen, the Bible speaks to these things. All my neat freaks are like, I love Leviticus. <laughs> Mold in the kitchen. Get rid of it. <laughs> All right, a couple of things that are just going to help you understand. I think th- th- I was trying to process because in the last service, it was just like blank stares. But I want to do something I do. I used to do a basics course for everyone at the garden. Just tell you what scripture is. Because I had some great dialogue afterwards, and I realized, like, this, this next section is so important. Because it's going to help you understand what we say when we talk about Scripture. Because there's two things that I really want you to see, and some of it's in the context of what we claim Scripture to be. So first of all, Scripture is God speaking His truth to us in human words. Right? So the 66 books of the Bible, 39 Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, one continuous story a compilation of divinely inspired writings that share one fulfilled unified story um, is, is testified over time. There's genealogy, there's wisdom, there's memoirs, there's legal code, there's poetry, there's history, theological essays, biography of Jesus, all sorts of things in there. The Bible is God speaking to us, his truth to us in, humans, in human words. The Bible is the word of God. And what we mean is that when we say it's the word of God, what we want you to understand is it's important that we get it right. Like, when we say, this is what the Bible says, first of all, what we're saying is, this is what we think the Bible means. But when we say it's the word of God, it means we have to do the work to know what was being said when it was written. If it says, thus saith the, if we say, thus saith the Lord, we got to do the work to make sure that's what the Lord said. We got to get it right. We don't want to be on the wrong side of history saying, well, we're going to justify things in our lives that he never meant to justify. So let me say this again in another way. The Bible is written in human language to human beings. This is not the spirit directing, like saying the words. This is the spirit inspiring humans that lived in real time and place, that had real names, that were born and di- that, were, uh, that lived and died, that wrote for purpose, for an occasion, for a reason to a group of people. So with all of that in mind, it means that when we approach the scripture, we have to approach it with the same uh, rules for interpretation as other books. 
We need to pay attention to the original audience. We need to pay attention to the author and what he intended it to mean. And we need to pay attention to how it would have been heard to the people it was written to, which, which leads me to a really important point. Ready for this? It's going to offend some of you. The Bible is not first God's word to us. It is first God's word to those whom it came originally. In other words, we need to understand for it to be God's word to us, we need to know what it was and how it was to those who first heard it. We need to know to our best ability what it meant to them. A couple more definitive points. You guys good? You're like, okay, I think I understand. This is really hard. Anybody who reads the Bible interprets it. Okay? So it's not like, okay, the Bible says. I hear this all the time. Well, when you say the Bible says, you are interpreting what you think that passage means. That's a hermeneutic. That's an interpretation. So by just saying, okay, um, like if we were just to cherry pick a passage in the Old Testament, let's say Deuteronomy, where there's all these rules to what to do with women that you find to be beautifully attractive, sexually attractive to them, after you conquer their land and you kill all of their family, and what to do with them when you take them as your wife. You shave their head and let them grieve before you have sexual intercourse with them. You're like, that's in the Bible? Yes, that's in the Bible. So I'm like, well, the Bible says, you're like, time out. <laughs> Hold on. Where is this in the history of Scripture, in the revelation of Jesus? Where is it in light of revelation? What did it mean back then? Back then, that was countercultural. That was progressive. That was pulling uh, the society and culture towards God's intent. Now, it's archaic. Are you guys with me? Someone's like, well, we can say that about other things happening right now, like what our view about certain things are archaic. But we could say, well, God never wants to pull us beyond what he intended. Genesis 1 and 2 are our anchoring stories, along with Genesis, or Revelation 21 and 22. And Christ, if Christ addresses the issue in scriptures, we should probably align ourselves to his interpretation of scripture. So, so for some of us, it will feel archaic and conservative. For, for others, it will also feel progressive and liberal. And that's, that's the tension we hold with allowing Christ's view and the authority of scriptures to influence our decisions and lifestyles. Is this good? So what, what am I getting at the, at the Garden Church? And this is for all Christians, I believe. The author's intent is our anchor of interpretation. It's the author's intent. So we have to do the work when it comes to big issues to define the author's intent, to say, okay, I, I, I think this is what that means, right? So what, do, what, what am I getting at? A text then cannot mean what it never meant. A text can't mean what, so we can't just justify our decisions by saying, but God bless you. Um, like, I think this is what it means and, and reinterpret it if it never was meant to be interpreted that way. A text cannot mean whatever we think it means. Well, I think in, based on my experience in life, based on the study I had this morning where I did Bible roulette, and I was like, cool, and I will bless you and expand your territory, and you will build houses. I think God's going to give me a house today. Or, uh, you know, or it says, wives, uh, be silent in the church. I think, babe, you're going to stop talking back to me today. Um, 
I'm going to pay for that one later. Um, I'm just kidding. A text cannot mean whatever I think it means or whatever our inspiration tells us it means. It, can't, it, can't, it cannot first mean whatever our hearts tell us it means, our feelings. All of these possible meanings must be measured against what it meant to those to whom it was originally written to. Okay, let me give you an example. We got some time in the service. Okay, um, we all interpret scripture, all of us. Do you agree? Okay, now real quick. Show of hands if you believe the Bible's authoritative today. Keep your hands up. Bible has authority for your life. Keep, I want to see your hands. Come on, raise them up high. All right, you believe the Bible's authoritative. Some of you don't, and your hands are showing. You just gave yourself away. No, keep your hands up. Um, keep your hands up if you think you should follow the commands of the New Testament, like God, what Jesus or Paul. Raise your hand if you think that. Okay, look at all these hands. How come none of you gave me a kiss when you walked in? I'm serious. Romans 16, 16 commands the church, greet one another with a holy kiss. What's going on, church? You just lied to me straight up, all of your hands. Some of you are like, I didn't see you. I didn't say hi to you. I didn't break, I didn't, I didn't loosen or relax or, 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 uh, that, that scripture, so I'm still not the least in the kingdom. Because that's what he's saying. What did you do? Why, why, why didn't you give me a kiss? Shut up. Didn't want to mess up. Thank you. Great answer. Didn't want to mess my hair up. Why else? It's inappropriate. What else? Cultural context. Oh. Okay. So let me just explain this real quick. So Jesus says, if you loosen one of the commands, you're the least in the kingdom. But you just took a command from Romans chapter 16 and said it does not apply today because of culture. All I'm saying is you all interpret scripture. And what we have to do is be consistent with how we interpret scripture. So if we say, hey, this is a cultural context, let's be consistent with how we got there. So when we say, yeah, that's not a command. If he was writing today, we might interpret it to be greet each other with hospitality or joyful hug or something like that, a, high, a handshake, a fist pump, an elbow during COVID or whatever it is, right? Someone said COVID in the first, first service. Why didn't Because someone said, you're, you're too tall and I couldn't reach. I was like, thank you. <laughs> So whatever, however we got there, let's be consistent. And that's what I'm trying to teach you is that we are going to be consistent with the scriptures. Our approach will be intentional based on the authorial intent. So this is the point. I want you to be passionate about the word of God. I want you to live under the authority of scripture, knowing that when we say the authority of scripture, we're saying that there's a process, a way of interpreting scripture that matters. It's anchored in the authority, author's intent, excuse me, and we want to embrace those things. And some of those things are gonna cause us to be angry and disappointed because it changes how we live. We can't follow the cultural norms as a result. Some of those things are gonna pull us to do things that are outside of our comfort zone. He com God commands, the scriptures command hospitality. Commands it, expect it. If you want to be a leader in the church, 
you're hospitable. The scripture expects, not tithing 10%, extravagant generosity. That's the only phrase I can use to describe what is expected of Christ's followers. That's gonna pull us to be uncomfortable. Would you agree? So that's what we're going after. I want you to have a courageous fidelity to scripture. To begin to have a mindset shaped by the scriptures more than the world and learn how to study and understand and engage in the world and let the Bible form your life from here on out. A couple of practices I'm gonna give you real quick, okay? Here are some quick practices and then we'll go into worship. I want you to walk away with some ways to engage in scripture. You guys ready for this? These are five practices. We'll go super quick. Number one, I want you to read scripture. On Wednesday, we're gonna give a reading plan. 40 days, we're gonna read through the New Testament. Some of you, that's gonna be really hard. It's gonna be like three chapters a day. Oh my goodness. It's gonna take you like seven minutes. I'm saying this seriously. Some of you have literally your priorities warped. You say you don't have time for quiet time. Let's make quiet time great again. We don't have time for quiet time. But you got, if you look at your screen time, there's like an, two hours of social media. You're texting 6,000 times a day. You're going online to all of the various websites. You're formed by the media world. You've got plenty of time for Stranger Things season four, round six or whatever it is. Yellowstone, I don't care. What, I don't know what you're watching out there, but I know you're watching it. Are you reading scripture? Look, read scripture. Just open up. Let the words go in and out. It's okay. You don't have to focus on it. You just got to read it. You got to let it be like a, a muscle. Like you're going to the gym, not because you feel like it, right? And in a world where we're shaped by all these things, we step out of here and we're being spiritually formed by the world around us. Let us form countercultural practices. Let's get on the treadmill. Let's show up to the gym at the same time every morning so that we are being formed by the word of God. If all you do is read a little bit, read scripture. The next one is I want you to learn to study the word. All right, so there are gonna be times where the passage is just gonna pop out and you'll be like, what does this mean? And I wanna give you a basic Bible study. This is a basic Bible tool that, that if you go to a Bible college, they're gonna, they're gonna teach you how to do this, all right? It's three steps for studying the word of God. Observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what did it mean? And application, what do I do? So let's just pretend together that I was randomly picking a passage. Like, let's just say I went to Ephesians, right? Let's just go mm, chapter five and just randomly picked, you know, passage uh, verse 23. Sorry, 24. Uh, no, let's go to 25. <coughs> it says this. So let's, I'm going to give you an illustration for this verse. Ready? Or how to do this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay observation, what does it say? Say it in your own words. Write it in your own words. All right, it's saying, um, husbands, we're to live towards our wives and love them like Christ Jesus lived and loved his church. So example, examples of that would be like he washed their feet, he cast out demons, he taught them, he served, he lived by an example, he used power to empower others. Oh, he died on a cross. Okay, so that's what it's saying. What does it mean? Well, what it means is husbands are to lead their households like Jesus led the church 
meaning self-sacrificial love. Okay, you guys good? What do I do? So, what I do is I approach situations. I'm so convicted right now. <laughs> Let's go to verse 23 real quick. <laughs> I'll give you, uh, so I go to situations where my natural instinct would be to give a scorecard. Look at all that I've done today. Look at all I always do for you and you are not doing for me. Or argue for the sake of winning. Or use a tone because all I know is how to react in those situations based on my childhood. This is what a husband or father might do in this situation. Instead, I think the application might be to change my behavior in those situations. To hold my tongue. To change my mindset, not to bring accusation, but to bring affirmation, not to keep score, but to recognize this is an opportunity to be like Jesus. Rather than complaining about the dishes not being done, I now have an opportunity to serve my wife like Jesus would in this situation. And my hope is the, the application will be one day, there's no question what I'll do in that moment. I might have to shut my tongue and reform my thoughts and do it begrudgingly until one day it will flow naturally out of me that my wife only knows the love of Christ. That's a long-term goal. <laughs> That's a study right there. By the way, study leads to encounter. How many of you feel convicted? That's the word of God. That's one, one verse. Three questions. A lifetime of possibility. I'm going to say that one more time just so we can keep that up. One verse, three questions, a lifetime of possibility. Study the word, listen to the word. If you don't have time, shut off the music, shut off the, the NPR, shut off the podcast. Listen to the scripture as you drive to, drive to work. Listen to the scripture as you go on a run, as you work out. I know you might slow down your pace. Might not be as pumped as Eminem or something else. Getting you on that treadmill for health. But it's the word of God. Meditate on scripture, which is taking a passage and just letting it soak inside of you. Letting the text get inside of you. And memorize scripture. Uh, I, I think memorization is one of the most important spiritual disciplines today. Memorization is one of the, is probably the most important spiritual discipline of our time. To allow the word of God to shape our realities by memorizing scripture. Jesus memorized scripture. He defeated temptation with Satan, with word, with scripture that was embodied within him. Memorized word of God. So these are five disciplines we should practice when it talks about engaging in Scripture, allowing ourselves to live under the authority of Scripture. Read, study, listen, meditate, memorize. My hope is your hearts will burn. That you will be able to distinguish the deceiving spirits out there. And as Paul says, that you would watch your life and your doctrine closely. You persevere in them. And you'll save some. So can we stand? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.